Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, but then again, I don't ever recall a time when it wasn't good to be on the air. And if there was, then all I can say is that something wasn't right with me. But anyways, I'm glad to be on the air again, and here we are discussing Peter L. Bernstein's uh, Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation. You know, um, podcasting itself... Um, brings me a lot of uh, joy uh, in the sense when it comes to history. You know, I've been a big history buff for quite some time, and uh, my wife enjoys history as well. Uh, but whenever, wherever we go, uh, whether it's to Colonial Williamsburg, Monticello, or anywhere else historic, you know, we learn something. And whether we learn information beforehand, we're always bound to learn something new, which makes um, history all the worth uh, learning, not only in the present, but where it will take you in the future. So uh, I'm looking forward to this particular uh, podcast session with Wedding of the Waters in the Erie Canal, but that's not to say that other sessions will be um, worth uh, learning about as well. But this particular podcast session, we're going to be discussing um, about European explorers. Uh, we're still talking about the um, the visionaries, in other words, those who um, who laid out the foundation for what um, they saw was something that could uh, be attained in the future to make the New World, being America, a great uh, place not just to live, but a, a nation that could um, set the stage for um, for um, making commerce not only just a true reality, but commerce in a way that um, that had never be, been seen before in the New World. Because as I had um, mentioned from um, the previous uh, podcast uh, discussing canals and uh, roads and uh, moving by uh, ship and all that, while those um, were signs of progress, there still were some setbacks. And uh, learning about what canals could do and what had to be done to modify when going uphill, they're all challenges, but it's over time how man can modify the challenges so that um, whatever is being done in the present perhaps won't be as um, burdensome come uh, the future. So we're, our first uh, leadoff bonus question will be uh, the following. Which European explorer was the first to navigate around New York Harbor? I'll give you a few uh, choices. Choice A is Christopher Columbus. Choice B, Giovanni da Verrazzano. Uh, choice C, uh, Ferdinand Magellan. The answer is choice B, Giovanni, Giovanni de Verrazzano. In 1525, he would go about searching for an open waterway that would lead him straight to the Pacific Ocean. So, think about this, folks. In the year 1525, that's 82 years before the English arrived into the New World and established their first permanent settlement in the world, in the New World being uh, what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia. Well, let me ask you all this. Did Mr. Giovanni da Verrazzano succeed? Um, he didn't, but it wasn't just about 
exploring New York Harbor. During this time, he was he would also be the first explorer to um, navigate the Atlantic coast of North America between Florida and New Brunswick. So it is fair to say that Verrazano himself did uh, accomplish some stuff. It may not have been on the grand scale of a 10, but he did um, make... Um, he did achieve what he set out to do, and that was to explore the Atlantic coast. Now, I should point out that there is a bridge in New York City. Well, not in New York City, but it's a bridge that actually connects the New York City boroughs of Staten Island and Brooklyn, named the Verrazano Bridge. And who is that in honor of? Mr. Giovanni de Verrazano. And I learned about that uh, from this past summer where I read a book um, called New York's, The History of New York uh, Wine. Um, I either read the book, I believe I read the book just before or right after my wife and I uh, vacationed in New York State's Thousand Islands region, but um, the Long Island region um, where uh, wine was first introduced in the state, uh, Giovanni de Verrazano's name was mentioned. So that's a nice honor to have a bridge named in his honor, knowing that he was the first uh, European to navigate around New York Harbor. Well, here's another question for you all. Uh, is it fair to say that many European explorers became uh, truly convinced about travel routes or let alone passages or passageways being easily accessible by water to where land crossings weren't necessary? Oh, absolutely yes. Most of the explorers were convinced behind the existence of a northwest passage route that would allow direct travel from Europe to North America and Asia via water via water way the entire way. Think about it. I guess it's safe to say maybe for these people, this was their version of high-speed rail that could get them from point A to point B in a short time, or let alone getting to from Europe to North America to Asia by waterway the entire way. It might as well have been like the equivalent of flying on a on the jet that no longer exists anymore in terms of flying and use being that uh, Concorde, being that uh, supersonic jet. So I, you know, I have to admit that while, yes, many of these European explorers were smart for their time, I think it is fair to say that many of them were also very naive about um, what, what they would have had to have um, endured when it came to um, actually exploring um, land. And another explorer we're going to mention here, because he does have ties to New York, his name is Henry Hudson, and he too is a firm believer in this Northwest Passage route. So, when does Henry Hudson um, make it on to um, center stage in New York, or what we now know as New York? Is it any time shortly after Giovanni de Verrazano? Uh, no. Mr. Hudson arrives at the start of the 17th century, and it's not long after the English make their uh, first settlement into the New World at Jamestown, Virginia in 1607, that Henry Hudson, in September of 1609, being September 10th of that year, he steers his ship, the Half Moon, into New York Harbor being 84 years later after Giovanni de Verrazano, Hudson himself was in search of the water route leading him that would lead him to the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, Hudson is moving on up. He, he's 
moving on up a little bit more than Giovanni de Verrazzano did into New York. But Hudson's got two options before him, and they're both directions. He can either sail north or go west. Because remember, folks, if he goes east, he's going back into the heart of the Atlantic Ocean. If he goes south, he could end up in um, places like present-day New Jersey, even further south. Um, well, not further south, but south of New Jersey, uh, being Delaware, Maryland, and even Virginia, present-day Virginia. So if he goes northward, he'll still, be in, he'll still remain in present-day New York. And if he went westward, the same thing too. But we're going to find out here what direction he actually takes. Does anybody know whether it's north or west? The answer is north. Hudson and his crew will go northward, and nine days later, after he first set a foot into um, New York Harbor, on September 19th of 16, 1609, Hudson and his crew ventured 150 miles north, right above present-day Albany, being the state capital, where the river itself became more shallow. And if the river is shallow, does that mean that it's um, easier to navigate or, or more difficult? No, the answer is difficult. So, because the water becomes uh, a little bit shallower, Hudson and his crew have some tough choices to face. They can either, um, they could either stay put, or they can return back to Europe. Well, Hudson, I think it's fair to say that knowing that the water's become more and more shallow, Hudson probably knows that he has not found the Northwest Passage route. That's really what his primary focal point was on this mission. Well, the answer is the following, that Hudson and the rest of his uh, crew will return back to Europe. Well, the good news is that they do return back to Europe safely. Now, Hudson did um, meet up he did meet Indian tribes that occupied uh, the area uh, north of present-day Albany, and he probably did encounter Indian um, tribes on his journey, um, for, uh, on his journey just past the Hudson as well. But the big bonus question is this: Had Henry Hudson gone in a westward direction, where would he and his crew have voyaged into? The Mohawk River which runs west for more than a hundred miles, deep into New York State towards Lake Ontario. If Henry Hudson had gone in that westward direction, it's fair to say that he could have seen for himself just how rich and abundant these western lands would play out in securing the New World's future. Not just the future for uh, America, but let alone the future of how commerce would uh, one day flow in a manner that had never been seen before in America. But you know, Henry Hudson didn't know any better. I mean, look at it this way. If he had gone northward, there was probably a 50% chance he might have struck it rich. If he had gone westward, maybe 50%. But the way I see it is that if he had gone westward, I think his chances for success would have been well above 50%. But who's to say if he had gone westward that he would have, um, that he really would have um, been truly determined that what he saw was in fact the right thing? We'll never know. 
But what we do know is that there are there will be other another European explorer, or not just an explorer, but a, a surveyor, who will uh, seize upon what Mr. Hudson himself had missed out on. But before we get to that person's name, let's find out about this particular uh, region in New York State. It's And it's not just so much a region, but it's often referred to as the Mohawk Valley. Where in New York State is the Mohawk Valley located? I'll give you some choices. Uh, choice A um, would is the following. Um, would it be choice A of uh, being located in between Buffalo and Rochester? Uh, choice B uh, being located um, between... Um, the being in the uh, Finger Lakes or the Southern Tier region, or Choice C being in between uh, the Adirondack and the Catskill Mountains? The answer is Choice C. The Mohawk Valley is located in between the Adirondack and the Catskill Mountains. And if any of you all have never been to the Adirondacks um, before, it's very well worth uh, visiting. My wife and I um, vacationed there uh, nearly 11 summers ago back in 2010, Hard to believe it was that long ago, but it was. We went to Lake Placid, New York, for our five-year anniversary. And, of course, most of you are very familiar with Lake Placid, but for those of you who aren't, uh, Lake Placid is a uh, village in the um, in the uh, High Peaks region of the Adirondacks, um, and it was home to the 1932 and 1980 uh, Winter Olympic Games. As a matter of fact, it's the, the last... Um, small town village that hosted um, an, an international Olympic outing event, um, but uh, it's it's a great village to uh, visit. Um, and here's some interesting geographical information on the Adirondacks. Not to get um, off the subject, but it is um, pertinent information. The Adirondacks, um, the um, the mountains themselves, the Adirondack region, is comprised of uh, 6 million acres of uh, protected land, or I should say the Adirondack National Park. That means that the park itself is, has more uh, protected land acreage than all of Yosemite, Yellowstone, uh, Grand Canyon, and Glacier National Parks. You could even fit the state of Vermont into the Adirondack National Park. That's how huge it is. Now, I've not been to the Catskills, but what I do know is that the Catskills are south of uh, Albany, uh, New York. But the Mohawk Valley itself is comprised of major cities uh, ranging from Schenectady, uh, in Amster from Schenectady and Amsterdam, which are located outside of, Pre uh, located outside of Albany, to uh, Utica, Rome, and Little Falls, which are on the outskirts of uh, Syracuse. Those are just some of a handful of us of uh, cities that are um, in the Mohawk Valley, but those are some of the uh, big uh, cities. And of course, it's fair to say that those five cities that I mentioned uh, a moment ago uh, will have um, will have some form of um, important involvement with the Erie Canal. So here's um, a bonus question here for you all, and this is a good one. Which Indian group nation occupied the Mohawk Valley by the time of European arrival into the early 16th century? The answer is the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, some people refer to it as the Iroquois Nation or the League of the Iroquois. But this um, group is comprised of Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, and Senecas. 
The Iroquois nation controlled large land territories between Albany and the Great Lakes. Great Lakes being Ontario, Erie, Huron, Michigan, and Superior. I should point out, though, in the year 1722, a sixth nation joined the League of the Iroquois, being the Tuscarora. It's interesting to note, too, that um, four of the five Indian tribes that I had mentioned of the Iroquois Confederacy have um, lakes named after them, being Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, and Onondaga. There, and I think that's a great way, uh, after all, of remembrance, after all, these Indian tribes were uh, vital to uh, New York State. There is a name also for the Iroquois uh, called the Haudenosaunee. Um, unfortunately, I don't know it off the name, what it means off the top of my head, and I do apologize for that, but I, I do know that it has something to do with, like, their uh, village. But... Uh, the Hod but that's um, part of their um, heritage with the Haudenosaunee. Now, um, when the Europeans arrived, what, what were they intrigued mostly by with the Iroquois nation? What was it that they saw about the, this tribe or these uh, tribal groups that they had never known about before? Well, it turns out that the Iroquois nation um, had what was known as wampum. Not just so much wampum, but the presence of shell beads that were exchanged during ceremonial functions. And these beads being wampum. Well, is it fair to say that, uh, that the Europeans had metal coins on them when they came over? No. No, there was a scarcity in metal coins. But it's probably safe to say that the Europeans that came over to um, present-day New York State did bring with them uh, metal tools and copper pots. We do know that um, that the settlers or the English that came to present-day Jamestown in 1607 brought uh, copper pots and uh, metal tools. And that was a means of uh, trade. Uh, because think about it, most Europeans that came over to the New World had missed a planting season or yet were not familiar with the terrain as to how to go about not just so much hunting, but how to go about cooking the foods and let alone preserving foods because their uh, way of uh, preserving foods in Europe obviously is going to be much different than in, say in the new world. So how are you going to, um, how are you going to go about um, establishing a barter process? Well, for these um, Europeans, they're going to turn to wampum because wampum itself will provide a long-term means for exchanging goods. Okay, the Indians want, um, say, copper pots and metal tools. What would the Europeans want? Furs. Why furs? Think about it, folks. Beaver furs, pelts. You can make fine uh, attire out of it, like most notably hats. So, and wampum obviously has, um, the wampum beads themselves have uh, better durability, size, and they're different in different shapes, but they, but most of all, regardless of the durability and the size and the shapes, they provide better long-term security for how um, exchanges can be made so that both parties will be able to ensure that their um, levels of supply and demand can be sustained. So, 
now we now we're going to find out about which person or uh, let alone he's not a European explorer but he comes from Europe but he will be the first person to recognize the vast potential behind a westward route via the Hudson River and the Mohawk Valley who is this fellow's name most people probably have never heard of him before I didn't know about him until I read this read the book um, Wedding in the Waters a few years back his name is Cadwallader Colden. He is an Irish scientist. Not just an Irish scientist, but he is a physician and a surveyor. He's born in the year 1688 in Ireland. So prior to his arrival into America, he produces works ranging from natural history, physics, chemistry, medicine, to botany, this, this fellow could be described as a Renaissance man, even though the Renaissance era has already, um, has already left us well, into, well before the 17th century came along. But this man is very well uh, versed in that he has a, a, a vast array of knowledge in so many um, fields. You know, it's one thing to be a surveyor. But if you're going to be a surveyor, you might as well be a scientist. You might as well have some knowledge about natural history. You might as well have knowledge about um, about the study of trees and, and as well as geography. If you're going to ensure that one day a dream can be um, realized, and that is, you know, the canal, the Erie Canal, you've got to know the whole layout of the land, or let alone the whole nine yards. So what happens to Cadwallader Colden in 1724? Now, 1724, it may not to some of us it may not seem the grandest year, or it may not seem a, like a remarkable year of true importance, say like you know 1776. But what's interesting about 1724 is that uh, for Cadwallader Colden, is that he gets sent westward um, into western New York State. He gets sent westward by uh, General by Governor William Burnett, who is governor of New York. And at this time, Mr. Colden is surveyor. He he serves as surveyor general to Governor Burnett. But Governor Burnett wants him to go into uh, Western New York for territory or let alone terrain studies, so that he uh, will get a better understanding of the topography, the geography, the waterways, and the climate. Think about it. It's like I said earlier, if you want um, something to become a, a dream or a reality in terms of building something grand that will happen one day, what do you have to do? You've got to study all of this stuff, the geography, the topography. You've got to find out, hey, what are the advantages? What might be the disadvantages? How can this be modified to where passageways from one section of the river to another will ensure a boat's safety, not just going downhill or downstream, but let alone upstream when going against a current? It's also fair to say that, Ms. that Governor Burnett is having Cadwallader Colden also be an agent, or let alone an agent informant, that will involve... Um, what do you call it, um, watching over the activities or little alone activities that are political and military involving the French and the Indians. How so, folks? Well, the French have um, a lot of uh, territory in New York State, most notably the St. Lawrence River. 
You know, there's Lake Champlain, named after French explorer Samuel Champlain. The French have a big role, and we're going to find out here shortly just how big their presence is in um, in the New World. But it will give, but it does give the British concerns because, while yes, they have established um, 13 colonies in the New World, well, 12 because. Uh, Georgia won't be established for another nine years, not until 1733. Well, yes, we've got 12 colonies established at this time, and that's great. We're still in search for other, um, for other achievements, because if we want to retain our status, we've got to be on the move. The British have to be constantly on the move. We can't sit back and say that, okay, we've got 12 colonies and that's it. No, we've got to find a way to be able to link the ocean to the to the inland, let alone the inland waterways. That's the big objective. So, for Cadwallader Colden, the journey uh, westward probably took him, for all we know, it could have taken him uh, well past uh, present-day New York State. He could have possibly gone into what we now know as Cleveland, Ohio, or Erie, Pennsylvania, and we must remember, too, that uh, New York State was not the same uh, shape like it is in today's time. Uh, Virginia, the same way, too, because when the English came to Virginia, for example, in 1607, they were convinced that Virginia went as far west as the present-day present Pacific Ocean. Well, they probably had every reason to believe that. But, of course, at one time, um, Virginia went as far west as present-day Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois. Present-day West Virginia was part of Virginia, as well as Kentucky and Tennessee. And remember, folks, Virginia was the largest of the 13 colonies. So, um, for uh, Cadwallader Colden, um, he will also, this journey will also enable him to uh, compare and contrast differences involving waterways like, say, Lake Erie to the St. Lawrence and Hudson Rivers, and this will also allow him to report on Indian tribe relations. In other words, what are the tribes like in the, in the Iroquois Nation amongst each other? What are their relations with the British and the French? And what areas do they agree with the Europeans on? What do they not agree with us about? So he's got to He's, this is a lot to think about, folks. This is no joyride for him. As I said before in the previous uh, podcast and in the introduction, we're not just so much planning the future of, of, the, of this uh, new world that will eventually become the United States. We're also thinking about national security. The Europeans have to wonder, hey, what, how are we going to ensure our national security in the new world so that... Um, so that those who were already here before us do not threaten, do not threaten us to where our survival is at stake. So here's um, a good bonus question here for the following: uh, What advantage do the French hold over the British in the years leading up to that French and Indian War? The French have access to inland navigation, which ranged from the mouth of the St. Lawrence River and included Lake Ontario to the Atlantic Ocean, north of Maine, as well as to the mouth of the Mississippi River, connecting the Gulf of Mexico. This is a lot of, uh, 
this is a huge swath of um, of uh, waterway and inland access that the French have. And to make matters even better for the French, they have a trade monopoly in furs and timber. So the British right now are at a real disadvantage. It'll be interesting to see what uh, Mr. Cadwallader Colden can um, decipher that will help uh, modify um, the situation so that the British can come up with their own uh, alternative solution that can rival what the French have. Now, as for the St. Lawrence River, I should point out that my wife and I, when we went to uh, the Thousand Islands region of New York State uh, this past summer, that's in the northern part of New York. It's um, west of the Adirondack Park. But we did get to take um, uh, three boat rides, I should say, along the St. Lawrence River, and that was really, really um, amazing. Uh, the St. Lawrence River is clear. I mean, it's not, it's not murky. It, it's not... Um, dark it's it's a bright um water so it uh it's it's it was very well worth and we did get to see um boats um not just boats i, I should say um ships coming from the atlantic ocean into the saint lawrence river they'd already journeyed from the atlantic ocean into the saint lawrence river making their way eventually into the um great lakes Now, um, how will Cadwallader Colden discover major differences between the St. Lawrence, the Mohawk, and the Hudson Rivers? All right, let's fasten our seatbelts here. For starters, he determines that the St. Lawrence is the only link to the Atlantic which the French have for both export and import purposes. Remember, folks, what exports are? Exports are what you're shipping out. Imports are what are coming in. So, yes, yeah, so for the French, their only link to the Atlantic, their only link for the St. Lawrence is directly to the Atlantic. There's no other uh, water outlet connecting the St. Lawrence other than the Atlantic Ocean. And with regards to trade among the Indians, I mean, the, how do I say it? Um, with the St. Lawrence being the only link to the Atlantic, which French, which the French have both export and import with regards to trade amongst the Indians. Secondly, the river itself between Quebec and Montreal has tides of 18 to 20 feet. That makes it very hard for boats to avoid disaster. I can't imagine being on that stretch of the river with a tide of 18 to 20 feet. Now, as for the Hudson River, Colden saw... That river as one that had few sandbanks and rocks which would allow the boats to move freely by day and night. So here's a, a big uh, difference right here. If the Hudson River has few sandbanks and rocks, that means that the river itself is going to be much more easier to navigate, not only just during the day but at night, and it also means a less likelihood of uh, your boat flattening out from the bottom. Like, you know, hitting a shoal. St. Lawrence River, that's a whole other story. You'd be better off navigating that body of water in the daytime versus the night. As for the Mohawk, the current on the Mohawk is smoother with fewer waterfalls versus the St. Lawrence. 
Ah, waterfalls. You know, it's easy to think of waterfalls or, or just being these genuine, these, um, what do you call it, general um, streams of water that just flow down so, so smoothly to where um, nothing bad can happen. Well, waterfalls come in um, all shapes and sizes. And as for the St. Lawrence, that that's a huge obstacle compared to what the Mohawk and the Hudson River don't have to deal with. So, what does Mr. Cadwallader Colden become all the more convinced about? Well, he becomes very convinced as a result of his studies that the Mohawk River was the nucleus, meaning the brain or the core uh, component that could lead to building what we now know as the Erie Canal. How so? Well, I'm going to give you a synopsis, uh, a brief synopsis based off of his observations. And I will tell you all that, yes, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a surveyor, but I will describe to you all what I know is the best way to explain this. So here we go, folks. Most of the Mohawk River is smooth. Most of the river is smooth sailing, in part due to the first 40 miles from its origin. So, in other words, the first 40 miles, it, it's a straight shot. There's, um, there's not a waterfall. There's not, um, there's not any what you call rocky channel or, or let alone uh, any you know shoals that you could come across. So, as I said, the, the most of the river is smooth sailing, in part with the first 40 miles from the origin being all uh, flat terrain. Now, the river itself will angle downward nearly a foot a mile, and then after encountering a waterfall at Little Falls, the landscape flattens out as the river covers 62 miles with a decline of 2 feet per mile. But in the end, the greatest hurdle revolves around a river, around the river dropping more than 200 feet over 16 miles between Schenectady to the point where the Mohawk itself empties into the Hudson being north of Albany. The entire length of the Mohawk River, including the two big waterfalls, basically means or meant that the downward slope or angle was only four feet per mile. Well, when you only have two um, waterfalls to contend with, based off of what I've just described, that means that your sailing across this river is going to be all right. Not just going downstream, but upstream. It doesn't mean that there could still be a challenge, but for Mr. Colden, he knows that this is a better um, route. That that it, I mean, it's not the ultimate part of the Erie Canal itself, but this section of the canal will help ensure smooth sailing. And later years to come, after Mr. Colden passes on, would the Mohawk Valley and its surrounding countryside play a crucial part behind the Erie Canal's development? Yes, for one, its most unique feature was a deep gorge. And um, what is um, 
the go what is a gorge? A uh, gorge is um, a narrow valley. It's another word for narrow valley. The yes, the Mohawk Valley's most unique feature was that narrow valley or deep gorge that rose 500 feet above water to where it tightens tightened the river to the narrowest point by cutting its way through a non-permanent um, divide in the mountains. Now that's uh, something very unique. How so? Well, the Mohawk um, River is the only river in the eastern United States that slices right through the Appalachian Mountain System. I had no idea about that until I read the, this book a few years ago, and then when I um, read over uh, for this uh, presentation, I had to be reminded of it again. You know, we think of mountains as just being mountains. We don't think of anything um, like this where a river could slice right through a mountain. How so? Because all other rivers on the eastern slopes flow downward. They flow down toward the Atlantic Ocean, which results in land traveling over mountainous terrain and reaching western geographical points. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, this Mohawk um, River is um, all to itself. In other words, it's, it's in the elite minority. Recent historians now know had the Mohawk Valley Gorge not been uh, cut. I don't want to get ahead of the, not trying to get ahead, but I really should point this out to you all now so that you understand going forward why this part of the um, survey expedition was so essential. Historians now know that had the Mohawk Valley Gorge not been cut, the United States' history... We're not just talking so much, folks, about the Erie Canal's history, but the history of the United States. Our nation's history would have been extremely different had the Mohawk Valley Gorge not been cut. How so? Without this gorge, or let alone narrow valley, the American people might have become split up amongst the Appalachian mountain range. Basically, this could have resulted in two or more separate nations. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, if, if the Mohawk Valley Gorge had not been cut, I don't see how, um, over time, the Northwest Territory, being the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, would have uh, remained a part of the United States. The Erie Canal, obviously, over time, will link, um, will go past western New York into um, Ohio and um and into Michigan, um, it will go westward, beyond western New York and uh, Pennsylvania. So, think about it. If this gorge had not been cut, for all we know, we could have had um, more than, um, the, I mean, yes, you would have had your 13 um, states along the eastern seaboard, but what other? But there would have been other nations in North America. So I can't imagine what that would have looked like. I do know that there would have been no such thing as the United States, probably. So in the years after Cadwallader Colden's surveying the Mohawk Valley, the region itself 
would go through some very, very unpleasant times. It would basically become a hotbed for bloody confrontations between the French and the British. Does the French and Indian War ring a bell? Yes. And yes, uh, bloody confrontations between the French and the British would occur to where portage access, and do any of you all know what portage means? It means route, or let alone a waterway route. So, it, to where waterway access involving the Great Lake waterways and navigation via water would have insurmountable stakes at hand. So, whoever wins the French and Indian War not only gets to keep the territory they have, but they'll also get to control who has sole rights for waterway um, routes, or let alone portage routes. So think about this. This is why the British are so determined to make a statement. You know, this is, I mean, think about it. The British and the French, I mean, they've been at war with each other for a long time, but it's nothing new. Of course, I think it probably is fair to say in today's time their relations have improved, but at this point in time in the, in, in the 18th century leading up to the French and Indian War, it's not so much a war where the French and the Indians are fighting against the British. It's really, a, a, it's like its own version of a world war, except it's a world war involving a continent. A continent that will determine who controls rights to navigation of the Mississippi River, who controls rights to the Northwest Territory, uh, who controls the Great Lakes. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast, and um, when I come on the air for the next one, we'll still be talking about visionaries, but we're going to be talking about um, someone who um, is, is not a European, I mean, he does have European descent, but he did not come from Europe to explore um, a Canal Passageway. He's actually from Colonial America, and he is not just an ordinary individual. He is uh, an individual who will rise to um, who will rise to fame in all levels. I won't give out the name. I'll leave that as a surprise in the next podcast. But it's been great to be on the air. And just remember this, folks. Um, I, I want to thank you all for listening to my podcasts and continue to do so and pass it along to those out there who are in dire need of wanting to learn about information that's relevant. Because with all the sadness that's going on in the world right now, we all need to do some. We all need to do something that's good. And the kind of good that I'm bringing to all of you is podcasting. Because for one, I enjoy history. And two, while I know history isn't always pretty, what I do enjoy uh, sharing with you all is history that's relevant. History that, in some instances, is not being taught in schools, or let alone is being done away with because, sadly, there are those who find it to be, be sensitive. Yes, there are a lot of things that are sensitive. However, we've got to find ways to learn about it. We've got to learn about the past. Even as the uh, interpreters at Colonial Williamsburg will say, especially the gentleman who plays young Thomas Jefferson, uh, when my wife and I saw him um, 
up on the Charlton stage last month, he said, you know, we're, we learn about history so that we can learn from the past and not make the same mistakes. So there you have it, folks. It's all about learning from the past, learning from the mistakes so that we can be better stewards going forward in the present, but also for the future. Well, thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care.